0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Today is often referred to as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that we pay special attention to a major event in the life of Christ. And the older I get, the more I look forward to this week uh, each year. Um, there's just something about this time. It starts meaning something more. Uh, and the older I get, the more I look forward to these next seven days. Because Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what we often refer to as the church's Holy Week, the occasion where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that young colt and donkey, fulfilling the prophecy. Of Zechariah 9:9, 9, that 9. was taught for years. It was read for years and years, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that prophecy was was taught and it was spoken year after year after year. And so this morning, we are going to go back to that moment that Jesus rode into that city. And I want to tie it into our theme verse for Easter and our theme that is called undeserved. And next, on Sunday morning come Easter, we will talk a lot about that. But here's our verse for today and next week that says, For our sake... He made Him who uh, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so our focus is going to be on this word, undeserved. And so today and on Easter morning, we will look at that incredible verse. So what is it about Palm Sunday that makes it special? And why is it so important? Well, to find out, you have to go back... About 1,500 years. You see, it all started when the children of Israel were being held captive in Egypt. A story that has been told that many of us are familiar with. Where God raised up a man named Moses to uh, deliver the people of Israel to freedom. Pharaoh refuses. And so God delivers 10 plagues. And the last plague was very unique and involved a special ceremony. On the 10th day of the first month, you were to begin choosing a lamb. It had to be one year old, it had to be a male, and it had to be without blemish. Then on the 14th day, you were to sacrifice that lamb. You would take the blood of the lamb and you would dip a branch of hyssop in it and you would paint your doorpost with the blood of this lamb. They were to not leave their house for any reason because having the shed blood would shelter them. Because God was going to pass over each and every home, Egyptian or Israelite. God would pass over that home, and if there was a home that was marked with blood, He would simply pass over it. But if there was one that was left unmarked, the firstborn child, the firstborn male of that home would die. So on Passover night, that very first one, Israel was to gather in their home. The lamb had been slaughtered. They had roasted the lamb. The blood had been smeared over the doorpost. And they were to sit down and to feast on that roasted lamb with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. They were to do so with their cloaks tucked into their belts, with their sandals on their feet and their staves in their hand, ready to leave at any moment. And then from that night on, Israel would continue to celebrate Passover. Each year, a Jewish family would travel back to the holy city of Jerusalem And it was during that week that they would bring their lamb that they had raised all year long. And on that Passover night, the lamb would once again give his life. The blood would be smeared over the doorpost of that home. And you would retell the story of the exodus. So now you fast forward 1,500 years and the annual Passover celebration is still going on. But this year we read about is different. This was a year that changed everything. In fact, you can find this account in all four Gospels Matthew 21, Mark 11, John 12, and Luke 19. And this morning we read from Luke 19 the responsive reading of his triumphal entry. But here's what is so profound about that moment in history because a 30 year old, obscure Jewish man from a small town comes riding in on a donkey. And people are running to cover the road with their coats and palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now can you imagine that for your whole life you have been traveling and you have been making this journey year after year to Jerusalem. You went with your parents, you then took your children and possibly now your grandchildren and I imagine that for 1,500 years, this was continued to celebrate. But after a while, that year that was so special, I, I believe the shift might be more to, hey, it's just a chance to see old friends. Hey, it's a chance to go get to stay in a nice inn. It's a, an opportunity just to be in this city that swells with people with the, the, the air of celebration. And they could soon forget that yes, God had delivered their great-great-great-great-grandparents out of slavery of Egypt, but there was another promise that they were supposed to be waiting on, the promise of another deliverance. And all of a sudden, this year, that probably felt like any other year, you hear that the Messiah, the promised one, the true king, was actually coming into town. I believe it wouldn't matter what you were doing, you would drop whatever it was, and you would do whatever you could to find a place to see of this one that everybody was shouting about. And there stood this man from a small town of Nazareth, a carpenter's son that everybody was calling Jesus. But for me, here's what is so shocking about that moment. The same people that are gathering along those streets. They're throwing their coats on the ground. They're cutting palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, here who comes in the name of the Lord. Our king is here. Then in less than a week, the same people are saying, crucify him. Crucify him. So let's go back to that warning that the crowds gathered as Jesus rides in Jerusalem. And Why were they gathering? Why were they shouting? And what is it that that causes us to shout for joy in these circumstances. And I've experienced this a couple of times in my life. I I can remember one, um, uh, December 10th, 2010. I'm standing at Cowboy Stadium, and there are thousands of people gathered there, and Henderson is playing their longtime rivals, the Chapel Hill Bulldogs. The week before, Henderson's star quarterback uh, LeBradford Barnes had broke his hand. Nobody was giving Henderson a chance. And here they are. I've not been to a state championship game for the 3A in ever. Uh, they're there, and Henderson wins by a touchdown. And I found myself with thousands of other people standing there yelling like a maniac. And we go, why is that? Well, then I can remember another one. January twelfth, nineteen 1989, I just we just moved, it'd been about a year since we'd moved to Texas, and I'm standing in the Cotton Bowl, and I'm watching my beloved Razorbacks, and they're playing this team named UCLA that had this quarterback that didn't amount to anything named Troy Aikman, and here I am standing with my brother, our faces are painted red, we've got our plastic hog hats on, and we are just going crazy yelling for this team, and we go, Why? Do we do stuff like that? What causes a saxophone player from the University of Kentucky to cry because the men's basketball team has just been beaten, gotten beat by the Indiana Hoosiers? Why will we sit in front of a TV in Yale as if they can hear us and want to know what we have to say about what's going on? Why do we do? Why do we get so wrapped up in a team or a group in a person when oftentimes We really won't even remember who wins a few years later. I think it's that we have a sense that they are representing our cities, our schools, and ultimately ourselves. We may not even know the players' names, but we think that they are doing something on our behalf. And so we rejoice in their victories, and we agonize over their defeats. So deep down, there is this desire that we want someone to represent us. So, as Jesus is entering in Jerusalem, people are cheering because they believe that Jesus is coming to represent them. But here's where the problem lies the Jews are no longer being held in slavery in Egypt, but they're still not free, they are being ruled by the Romans. And many believed that Jesus was coming to establish Israel as a powerhouse. Many believed that he was coming to maybe put Rome in their place. Many believed that Jesus was there to give them their lives back. So now Jesus was their king. He was coming to defeat an enemy. And he was coming to set them free. But not in the way they imagined. He did not meet their expectations. They had a king and a deliverer in mind. And Jesus was coming as something different. So in less than a week, the people turned from shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. Because Jesus did not meet their expectations and they were done with him. But think about that for a moment. Think about the expectations we place on Jesus. We say, Jesus, if you really love me, I would not be going through this trouble I'm in. If Jesus really could heal, then why is my family member suffering like that? If Jesus really cares, then why am I stuck in this job that I don't like? And why do we struggle so much financially? If Jesus is really all-powerful, then why doesn't he get a work with me or do for me in this situation like I want? The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is, is that we become frustrated, we become angry when he does not do for us what we want. So in a sense, we can also turn from shouting Hosanna to crucify him, meaning we can stop shouting, Lord, come near to Lord, get away from me. You know, that's what I appreciate so much about Brittany and Adam. They said, you know what? We had a plan in place, but God has done something different. But we will still say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here's what we need to remember. And we need to preach to ourselves, and we need to believe. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways than ours, and his thoughts higher than ours. We need to be thankful for that because Jesus had a different plan. In fact, he had a better plan. Jesus was coming to meet their most important need. Their most important need was not to uh, be out from under Rome. Their greatest need was not to have civil deliverance. Their greatest need was not to even be a supernation or to have power and prestige. Their greatest need is what we saw last week in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. It says... For Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God, and Jesus knew that. That's why He had come. So on Palm Sunday, I want us to realize that our greatest need is bigger and more difficult than we can imagine. So in your Bibles, I Hope you've already marked 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I hope you'll commit it to memory this week. So on this Palm Sunday, I want us to look at this need and how big and even how difficult it actually is, more than we can ever imagine. Because on one side is a holy and a perfect, loving God. That's on one side. Then on the other side is an unholy, imperfect, loveless humanity. How are the two going to come together? How can a loving and holy God come to terms with an unholy, loveless man? How can he do that? How can an unjust person stand in the presence of a holy God? I've heard some of these. Well, man, can't God just give everybody a do-over? You know, he did that. He did that with no one. And you know what? It wasn't long that sin crept back in. So no, once a person commits one sin, it is impossible for him to ever be perfect again because he is lost in his imperfection by his sin. Well, can't I just pay for my penalty? I've heard people say, you know what, man, Jesus doesn't deserve to die for me. Let me pay my penalty. You know, I think almost like paying a traffic ticket. I get caught, just let me pay the consequences. Well, no, you can't do that unless you wish to spend eternity in hell because it will take you that long to pay the penalty. I've often heard, well, can't God just overlook sin? Can't He just look at us and say, you know what? Just try again. Just do it again. And I'm just going to kind of overlook it this time. That really wasn't that bad. So I'm just going to kind of look back there, look past it. No. If God did that, he would be sacrificing his justice. Sin must be paid for. You know, we like the idea. We like the idea of sin being overlooked when we're the ones that have sinned and offended. If I offend you... I love the idea of you saying, you know what, it's okay. Let's, let's just move on. But we don't like the idea of injustice when we or someone we love is a victim. If your child was abused, if your wife was raped, if your husband was unjustly fired, if your car was stolen, you would be outraged if that person was on trial and a judge looked at them and said, oh, it's okay. I'm going just to give you another chance to do better. Because deep down, we want sin to be paid for. And if a man is going to be made right and just and reconciled before God, God's justice must be satisfied. Meaning, God is the one that set the consequences for sin and rebellion. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, you know what God says? God gives him the command all of this is yours, Adam and Eve, go and enjoy. The only thing I ask is you stay away from this one tree. And when they rebelled, God said, the consequence, the penalty for that is that you will die. Yes, a physical death, but also a spiritual death. God set the penalty for sin. And justice says that anyone must be able to pay the infinite penalty for man's sin. That it must be one that has never fallen into sin. It has to be one that somebody that's not paying for their own sins. It has to be somebody that is so pure that can then pay for someone else's. And so given these requirements, there is not a human that could ever qualify to do this. So you and I, we need a representative. We need someone to stand in for us. We need a substitute. You need a perfect lamb without a blemish. Someone to ride into your life who could live the life that you should have lived and then die the death that you should have died. That's what you need. And this is where we find our theme verse. Here it is again. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we may become or so that we can become the righteousness of God. So in this verse, you see two types of people. There is the deserved and the undeserved. Because of our sin and rebellion, we deserve the punishment of our sins, and we do not deserve to ever be in God's presence. And then there's another. There is one that never sinned, that does not deserve to ever be punished, and he does deserve to be in God's presence. So it goes back to the truth that in order for God to accept sinful people, the price of the rebellion, it has to be paid. There must be justice or God would cease to be God. So instead of punishing the one that he created in his image to love him, the father provides a representative. Someone to stand in for his children. So God takes all of your sins, and He takes all of mine. In fact, He takes the entire sins of the world, and He places them on Jesus, the perfect and sinless Son of God. Jesus, who did not deserve the beatings and the humiliation, the the scourging, to be hung naked on a tree, became as if He deserved it. And I haven't really thought about that much until this last week. Think about that. Yes, I've thought about Jesus taking my sins. And I remember the time I realized that, man, he doesn't deserve that. That's what I deserve, but he did that for me. And I accepted that free gift. But not only does he have to take my sins, he has to assume my guilt. He has to become the undeserved. He has to become as if he deserves it. And he was nailed to a cross as if he deserved the full punishment of not just my sins, but yours and the sins of every human to ever live. And God transfers yours and my sins to Jesus. But Listen closely. If all that happened, if all that happened is if there was a transfer of sin to Jesus that would not be enough to reconcile you to God. If Jesus took all of the sins ever committed on his back and he took the punishment for us, that would not be enough to get you into God's kingdom. And I know you're thinking, whoa, whoa that's more than I, I've never heard that before. It would be good enough to keep you out of hell, but we would still not be just. We would have no righteousness in which to stand on. So the first part, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is where God takes your sin and your guilt and he transfers it to Jesus. And he wipes out all the negative of your life. And that is enough to get you out of hell. But it is not enough to get you into his kingdom. Because you have done nothing good on your own. You have done nothing righteous on your own. So being made right, where he says, so that in Him we might, or so that we could become the righteousness of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, so that you could become that. So being made right and reconciled to God is not simply being innocent. It's being fully accepted and righteous. So thankfully... There was not just one transfer, but there's actually two. Not only is the sin of man imputed to Christ, but then the righteousness of Christ is then credited you as if you had done all of those things. Every bit of obedience that he did to the Father, it's as if that was you. And what happens is that he transfers all of that into our accounts. So you need Christ's death to remove the guilt of your sin. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is the removal of the sin guilt from you. But then you also need Christ's life, his perfect obedience, to make you fully accepted before God, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, there's a difference between maybe just being forgiven and actually being perfectly right. For years, I made a horrible mistake as a husband. When we would fight or be mean or be rude, Marla was always, and often still is, the first one to apologize. And I would simply say, okay, or all right, and, and I would just move on. But even though I had forgiven her, I was not giving her the security that we were right again. First Corinthians five twenty one is um, a reminder that forgiveness is that forgiveness is not enough. It tells us that we also need to be made perfectly right with each other again. You know, it'd be switch it around. You know, and. I could have said, you know, honey, I've been rude, I've been short, I've been ill-tempered, I've been mean. And she could just say, it's all right, and move on. Maybe I'm forgiven, but I'm not right. But if i made right, it would be me confessing where I was wrong, and then her looking at me and telling me all the things that she loves about me. And then I know I'm forgiven, but I also know that I'm right. So let me give you a One final illustration of this idea of being forgiven, but also being made perfectly right. Imagine you're on trial. You've committed a list of crimes. Not only are these crimes horrible and horrendous, they are actually committed against the judge that sits before you and his family and the people that he loves. The evidence is so overwhelming, and you are guilty. And at the close of the trial, there sits the judge, who you have wronged, and his children you have sinned against. And and at your sentencing, the courtroom is quiet, and it seems like an eternity has passed. And then the judge slams down that gavel, and he says, guilty. I mean, the courtroom erupts in applause because justice has prevailed. But just as you're about to be carried away, that judge stops. He comes down off that bench, and he stands beside you. He says, I want you to know that I forgive you. And he hugs you. And not only do I forgive you, I'm going to serve out your sentence. I mean, at this point, the courtroom can't believe it. And you now stand innocent because justice has been given because your guilt is being paid for by someone else. Justice has been served. It's just as someone else's expense. But it doesn't stop there. Before the judge is taken away to serve your sentence, he takes off his robe and he takes his gavel and he places that robe on you and he hands the gavel to you and he says, you know what, before you go and enjoy your freedom, I want you to know that everything I've ever accomplished, every award, every honor, every good thing I've ever done, I want you to know it is now as if you have done it. And At this point, no one can believe what they're hearing. But before I go, there's one last thing. You think, what more? I mean, you've given me my freedom back. You have paid the price of my guilt. You have even given me things that I didn't even deserve and things that I never did, as if I had done them. He says, I've got one more thing. He says, right before I pronounced you guilty, I signed a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, what I have done, he says, do you see my children sitting over there? Right before I pronounced you guilty, I signed the papers that actually made you one of my heirs. Everything that my children are entitled to, so are you. Because you see, because of Christ, you're not only forgiven, you're made right. And by trusting in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven and you can be made perfectly right with God. And so the question is simple. Are you trusting in Christ this morning? Do you believe that because of Christ, God fully accepts you just as you are? Because of Christ, you're not only forgiven, you're made right. Because He promises, He says, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin He was undeserving of that, but he became as if he deserved it. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God, which we could never deserve, but we come as if we deserve it. Let's pray. Father, on this morning of Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, I pray this week would be used greatly in our lives. That we would think about that moment that your son came riding in on that colt when the crowds poured into the streets to welcome their king. But in just a few short days, those cries of Hosanna turned to cries of crucify him. As Father, I pray this week we would become, as as much as possible, that we would come to grips with who we are without you. That we would be overwhelmed with how undeserving we are of any blessing you would give us. Of breath in our lungs, of food on our tables, houses over our head, family around us, that we are so undeserving. Because I believe when we can begin at that point, it makes your grace all the more beautiful. So Father, be with us this week. Guide our hearts and minds around the scriptures. That that moment would sit heavy with us. That we could come on Good Friday. And then we could allow those moments to rest heavy on us. Thinking about that ultimate sacrifice. That then come Sunday morning, we would be ready to celebrate as no time before. Because we are just overwhelmed with how undeserving we are. But how gracious you are in all things. So, Father, in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.